Our scripture reading for this afternoon comes from 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. Hear now the word of the living and the true God. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which is on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it, was told to, and it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and fatted animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and his ha- and all the house of Israel brought up the, Lord, the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. May God bless the reading of his word this afternoon. You may be seated. Well, it is a, a pleasure to be here once again and to see all of you. And I'm encouraged when I step through the doors here. This is only my third time I've, I've been down here, but the, the welcome that is poured out um, upon me is just uh, overwhelming, and in, in the best of ways, it's not overwhelming as I don't want to come back or anything. I, I, I want to come back. I wish I could come back more often, um, but it is wonderful to see each and every one of you today, and uh, one of the things that encourages me being here, while you are a smaller congregation. You are mighty. Um, the, the sound of the singing during the, the singing portion of the worship is very encouraging to me, mainly because I can hear the men. We don't hear a lot of men singing in, in churches nowadays, and so I really enjoy that. I, I love hearing that, that leadership here of men. Um, and it's also wo- very welcoming to have the children here that, that are very... Uh, Encouraging and come up and talk to you instead of uh, standing off in the corner or something like that. So I'm, I'm very encouraged by everything that I see here every time I come down. So uh, this isn't part of the sermon, so just thank you very much for the, for the welcome there. Um, I also remember my days of getting my wisdom teeth pulled, so I, I really sympathize with that. The week after I got my wisdom teeth pulled, I went to England. And so that, that plane ride was lovely. 
<laughs> but anyway, uh, I welcome you here uh, to God's house this afternoon, and this year has indeed gone by so fast. Um, it was mentioned earlier, but let's just see if you realize what this week is. But on Thursday, it's Thanksgiving. So I hope you all are prepared, and I hope you know that. And then if you don't know that, next month is Christmas. So we're, we're already there. I mean, 2023 is done. I mean, we're, we're on to the next thing, bigger and better things, and I'm ready for summer. I, I am, <laughs> we, my family and I were down in California a week and a half ago, and it was 80. And so it was, it was wonderful, and I come back, and it's raining, and 50 and 60 degrees, and but this is where the Lord has me, and I will rejoice in that. <laughs> but as we consider the season of giving that we are entering into, the question that I would have for you, the question that I would pose for each person here today as we think about God, as we think about worshiping God, and, and what the Spirit and the season of Christmas actually means, the question that I have for you is, what do you give God? See, we're, we're, we get caught up in the, the giving of, of Christmas, which is good. It's, it's a season of giving. We, we do delight in giving gifts to those who we love. And giving gifts is not a bad thing. But what do we as Christians, what do we as church attenders seek to give God? Um, and to expand on that just a little bit farther, are we giving God what he requires and desires in worship. When we come here on the Lord's Day, and we sing our songs, and we read the scripture, and we pray for those who we love and care about, are we doing it in such a way that God has commanded and required of us to do? Because I think that's one of the things in churches today that gets missed. We tend to want to do things our own way. We tend to want to worship God in a way that we might like to be worshipped, or whatever is comfortable for us. And so we just assume, because we're not necessarily doing anything wrong, that God is going to accept whatever worship that we give to Him. And I would like to pose this afternoon that that's not where our heart should be. That God has instructed us on what He requires from us in our worship. And our text today... I'm going to try and, and, and make that very clear. But do we want God's way or our way? Do you have a high view of God this afternoon and his holiness and his justice? Or do we have a low view of God? And I just want us to think about that as we, as we continue this, this afternoon. Uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, what do we pray for in the first petition? And that is the first petition of the Lord's Prayer that we just uh, said a few moments ago. And the answer is in the first petition, which is, hallowed be thy name, we pray that God would enable us and others to glorify him in all that whereby he makes himself known, and that he would dispose all things to his own glory. So, in essence... What we're praying for there is, it could, be, it could be worded, Lord, may your name always be holy, or keep your name holy. But essentially what we're saying is, God, glorify yourself. Glorify yourself. And how you worship 
reflects your view of God? Do you glorify God in your worship? Um, we, we can go into a lot of churches nowadays, and you can see the, the lights in the big auditorium, and you can have the band up on stage, and I don't necessarily think that's bad, but if it's more about entertaining the congregation, if it's more about just drawing people in so that you can have a big church and look successful, then your heart is not in the right place. In the same way, if you're doing hymns because you just think that's what you're supposed to do and you're opposed to any of the new things, I don't think that's quite right either. I think when we approach worship, our hearts need to be aligned with what Scripture says. And, when, and our motives should be to reflect God's holiness and to give honor and glory to the Son, Jesus Christ. It leads us to how we are governed in our worship. Are we governed by emotion or are we governed by God's word? Now hear me on this, please. Emotion is not bad. God gave us emotion. We should be emotional in our worship. I think if we're not emotional in our worship in some way, I think there might be something wrong. If we just approach God with a dry uh, sense of emotion and just sing the songs and pray the prayers and respond in the, the reading of scripture, our hearts aren't in it. We're not glorifying God that way. But if our emotions control us, if we disregard scripture and what it says about the fruits of the spirit being self-control, if we let our emotions just overtake us in our worship, that we don't consider God's holiness, but we consider the outward effects of what's going on, that's not right either. It draws attention to ourselves. In our world today, we're driven by emotions. Everything is based on feelings. We have the uh, famous phrase of uh, the conservative commentator Ben Shapiro, where he says, facts don't care about your feelings. Well, I would agree with that, but I would just change it. Scripture doesn't care about your feelings in, in that way if you're being governed by them. The mantra of the world is follow your heart. If it feels good, do it. If somebody says you're wrong for it, it doesn't matter. It's whatever feels right to you. And what the Bible says to, the, to respond to the phrase follow your heart comes from Jeremiah 17.9 that says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Kind of throws a little monkey wrench in the ways of the world. But of course, Scripture does that. Scripture, God's way, and the world's way are at odds with one another. We are to be in the world, of course. We can't escape the world until the Lord takes us home or returns. We have to be able to live in this fallen world. But we have to be able to do it the way God has called us to do it. Not driven by emotion, not putting ourselves in the center but being driven by the authority of Scripture, what God has commanded from us, and placing Christ in the center of our worship and giving Him the gifts that He requires us to give. Now, all illustrations fall flat in some way, but I'm going to try and give you a, a broader picture of what I'm trying to talk about here. Okay? If, my, if, my, if I was going to get my wife a Christmas present or a because I love her a present for any occasion, okay? 
I'd go out shopping, and of course, I want to shop around and see what I can I can find. Now, my wife's favorite color is like this peacock blue color. She loves this color. So, of course, I go to Guitar Center, and, <laughs> and I look up at the wall of guitars there, and I see a beautiful guitar in that same color that she loves. And my reasoning here could be, well... I love guitars. My wife loves me. So therefore, my wife loves guitars. And so I buy this guitar and take it home and I give it to her and I'm so excited. And do you think she'll accept it? I mean, you guys don't know my wife, but my wife doesn't play guitar. My wife doesn't want to learn how to play guitar. It's not a good gift for her. It'd be a great gift for me. And, but instead of having my wife as the focus, as the one I'm getting the gift for, I think I'm thinking of her because I thought of the color. But ultimately, she's going to reject the gift that I give her because I placed myself at the center and disguised my giving to her as just something that I am comfortable with and that I want her to like because I like it. If we see worship that way, if we try and give God glory and worship in a way that we feel comfortable with just because it's us, but we're ignoring what he desires from us and requires of us, it's not going to be acceptable worship to him. So God and his holiness need to be at the center of our worship when we consider him. Let us pray and ask God to bless this time. Father in heaven, we do this morning desire to give you worship that you will accept, that will glorify your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, as we make our way through your word this afternoon, I just pray that you would bless this time. I pray that you would keep me from error. I pray that you would cause me to decrease, that Christ might increase. I pray that you would open blind eyes and, and make hearts ready to receive you today. pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So that brings us to our text today in 2 Samuel. But before we even get there, we need to add a little bit more context to the story. And the question that must be asked when it comes to the context is, why did the ark need to be moved in the first place? So David is seeking to move the ark into Jerusalem, but why does he need to do that? Why was it in the house of Abinadab to begin with? Well, the answer to that, if you have your Bibles, goes back to 1 Samuel chapter 3. So, here we have the Israelites up against the Philistines. Now, the, the Ark of the Covenant that we're talking about, I'm sure most of you are probably familiar with that. And if, if you're not a Christian or you're visiting or something like that, it, it's the theme of the first Indiana Jones movie. But what was the Ark? The Ark represented the presence of God with his people. It was a holy thing. It was the visual symbol of God's holiness to the people of Israel. And the Philistines, at this point in history, were the strongest enemies of the people of God. In, the, in this passage that we're going to look at in 1 Samuel to give us the context, uh, I'm sorry, uh, chapter 4, chapter 4, not chapter 3. 
If we read verses 1 and 2, it says this, And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. So this great battle took 4,000 lives of the Israelites. And we continue on in verse 3. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the Israelites wondered why. The God who goes before us, the God who fights for us, the God who gave us this land that we're in. Why did he allow the Philistines to win in this situation? So their, their bright idea was, well, let's take the ark into the midst of battle. Let's bring God, in a sense, into the midst of battle. But the problem with this is they were trusting in the power of the ark rather than the power of God. They were trusting in the symbol that represented God, but they were not trusting in God himself. And to apply that to our worship, when we walk into a church and we see hands raised and voices raised, that's not a bad thing. But if they're trusting in the outward expression as a proof that they are right with God rather than repenting of their sins and, and, and following what Scripture says God requires... They're being put into the same position. They're putting themselves into the same position that we see here. They had the appearance of holiness. And now the Philistines recognize this. The Philistines had no idea. If we, if we continue on, it says that the Philistines were afraid. They had heard about what happened in Egypt. They had heard about the mighty things that Yahweh had done and the plagues and the way that Yahweh had defeated the enemies of Israel. And so this actually caused the Philistines to fight harder against the Israelites. Verse 10 and 11. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell and the ark of God was captured and the two sons, sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas died. So the Philistines captured the Ark of God. They killed 30,000 men and captured the Ark of God. The Philistines bring the Ark of God back to their cities and they place it into the temple of their god Dagon. And a few things happen when they bring the Ark into the temple of Dagon. The first thing is that they go out and they come back in the next day and Dagon is bowed down before the Ark. He is off his pedestal and he is face down before the Ark of God. And so the Philistines pick up the statue and put him back up and they go about their business. They come back to find the head of Dagon and the hands of Dagon at the entrance of the temple. They also, the people of the Philistines, break out in tumors and different plagues come into their cities. And they actually move the ark into different cities for seven months. Until finally they can't stand it anymore and they think it would be better just to send the ark back to Israel rather than keep it. And they offer offerings when they send it back to the people of Israel. And so the people of Israel place it into the house of a man named Abinadab. And now all of this happened before Saul became king. 
In our, in our text we're looking at today as the main text, David is now king. So Saul didn't move the ark. It was there for the entirety of Saul's reign. And then this first part of David's. So the, the ark was in the house of Abinadab for decades, rather than being in the midst of the people in, of Israel. Our leadership in our church matters. We know that Saul, the Holy Spirit, was taken from him. He was not the line that God had intended for a king. David was. And David is the one who moved the ark. Now, as we'll see in just a moment, there were some issues with David moving the ark. But the story does have a happy ending, so to speak. So, in our worship, we have to consider God's word. God gave clear instructions on how the ark was to be moved. If we look at Exodus chapter 25, verses 13 and 14, it says, You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the side of the ark to carry the ark by them. So now if we turn to Second Samuel in our text, chapter 6, and read verses 3 and 4, see if you might catch the red flag of what was going on here. It says, And they carried the ark of God on a new cart, and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart. With the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. The red flag that should stick out to us here is how the ark was moved. How David instructed the ark was to be moved. Now when the Philistines sent the ark back to Israel... They put it on a new cart. David treated the Ark of God. David treated the holiness of God in the same way that pagans treated the holiness of God. He put it on a new cart and he ignored God's word. So how does the world view God? The world may have a kind of respect for God in in some weird way. We hear people, even non-Christians, say, blessings to you, or God bless you, or even if you sneeze, they might even say bless you, not realizing what that actually means. You have people of all different backgrounds of faith and and practice celebrating Christmas, not giving any attention of what Christmas actually is and represents, or Thanksgiving, or Easter, they've changed it. And they've perverted these holidays and these celebrations in some ways. But we still have pagans and non-believers acknowledging God in some way or another. If you watch any kind of award show, many uh, celebrities who live lives completely uh, contrary to scripture may even thank God for his provision in their lives. And not realizing they're not talking about Yahweh. So how does the world view God? Well, the world hates God, if we get down to it. And if our worship looks like how the world treats God, if our language and actions reflect the world when we go in to worship God, we're not worshiping God. We're not honoring God the way he desires and requires. We are aligning ourselves with those who hate God. We're placing the ark on a new cart instead of following God's instructions. So David did not consider what God said. David knew God's word. Of course he did. Look at how many psalms he wrote. He knew God's word. 
David was also called a man after God's own heart. So why did David not do this? Why did David not follow the instructions of God? Commentators can be divided on this. Many will say just pride. David did have some sort of pride issues that we see throughout Scripture. But it doesn't mean that he was no longer a man after God's own heart. But it means that David was human. And David was prone to sin. If we know what God says and then ignore it, we're not worshiping God how we ought. There are professing Christians today that use the Bible as more of a moral compass. If you've seen any of the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, they talk about the pirate's code and how it's binding in law. And then you have the one line of one of the characters who says, well, the code is more like guidelines rather than actual rules. And unfortunately, that's how many Christians view the Bible today. It's just a set of maybe guidelines or some good moral things that we should follow and that maybe more times than not we can look to the Bible for instruction, but ultimately it's not, it's not authoritative in our lives. We have Christians today who gossip. I'm not trying to point anybody out here, but if any of these kind of pop up in, in your, prick your ears up a little bit, that's okay. That's okay. We're in church. We're supposed to be convicted a little bit here. But gossip. This is one of those acceptable sins in our, in our culture and in our churches. But the Bible has a lot to say about gossip. How about lust? What our eyes do? What did Jesus say? If you look at somebody with lust, you've committed adultery with them in your hearts. How about hatred? In line with murder of the heart. And we can list sin after sin after sin that so many of us don't think about on a daily basis, but God does. And we must be careful, church. We must be careful how we treat God's word. Are we taking it seriously? Are we living in obedience to Christ? Not to earn our salvation, no. But Christ said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. We obey out of love for Christ. That's why we do what we do. That's why we look to the scriptures. It's God's word to us. So if we ever say, well, I know what God said, but that's not a Christian phrase, church. That's not a Christian phrase. If we know what God says. We should do it. And we all fail. We all fail in this. And I would say we all fail in this every single day, whether you realize it or not. Because how should you love God? You should love God perfectly. Are you able to love God perfectly? No. Because you're imperfect. But Christ is perfect. So another question, how do you treat God's word? In your day-to-day life, when you go to work, when you go to school, when you wake up in the morning, when you go to bed, how do you treat God's word? Is it your authority in life, sola scriptura, by scripture alone as the sole infallible rule of faith and practice? Or is it just a moral compass that you can look to every now and then 
on how to live your life. Once we establish that in God's word, we can move on to considering your actions in light of God's word. Back to our text, good intentions are not always good if they go against God's word. Look at verse 6 and 7 of our passage today. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. So here's an honest question. How many of you think you would have done the same thing as Uzzah? Well, I wasn't asking for hands, but thank you. I like the honesty over here. Specifically this back left section here. Very honest. Very honest. I'll report that. Um. But yeah, if we see this holy thing of God being marched down the streets and the ox stumbles, I think just our, in, uh, our, uh, our reflex would be to stick out our hands and stop it. And I would be willing to bet that that's what Uzzah was doing. There's a problem, though. Though he had good intentions, though people may say his heart was in the right spot, which I would argue that, just based on what we're about to see here, the problem was he was going against what God had clearly commanded in his word. If we look at Numbers chapter 4, verse 15, it says... And when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, as the camp set out, after that the sons of Kohath shall come to carry these. But they must not touch the holy things lest they die. These are the things of the tent of seeing that the sons of Kohath are to carry. No one was to touch the ark. No one was to touch the holy things. God gave very clear instructions. He even gave clear instructions on who was to carry the ark. Because it couldn't be just anybody. It was a very specific group from a very specific family. And we might, we might say something like, Well, my worship is acceptable and fine with God because God knows my heart. Okay? Well, we've been over this at the beginning. Your heart is wicked. Your heart is deceitful. If God knows your heart, that should stand out in your mind first. You are far more sinful, and I mean this with love, but you are far more sinful and far more filthy than you will ever realize, and I am too. In the words of the late R.C. Sproul, who, if I'm sure I quote him every single sermon I ever preach, but R.C. Sproul says this, The presumptuous sin of Uzzah was that he assumed his hands were less polluted than the dirt. Uzzah's intentions might have been good, but they were not biblical. We could say that Uzzah's heart was in the right place, but yet God still struck him down. So I would urge you to think about this the next time we think that we can honor God any way we want. To go against God's word. To worship him however we feel, whatever we're comfortable with, rather than what he has instructed in his word. This striking down of Uzzah caused David to fear God. Verses 8 and 9. 
And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? Fear is a good thing. The fear of the Lord is a good thing. It is the beginning of wisdom. But this fear that David felt still didn't, at this time, lead him to do the right thing. If we look at verses 10 and 11, see if you can catch what happens here. So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. The interesting thing that I see here is that David was not willing to take the ark the rest of the way to Jerusalem. He was not willing to move it the rest of the way to Jerusalem. But he was still willing to move it to the house of Obed-Edom. Now, there are two things to, to consider here, and one is questionable and the other is good. Okay, I'll start with the questionable. We like to end on good things. If he was willing to move to the house of Obed-Edom, why not just go the rest of the way to Jerusalem? Why not just finish the task that he set out to do and bring God's presence into the midst of Jerusalem? But the good thing that we'll give David credit for, and he deserves a lot of credit, man after God's own heart, Obed-Edom was of the family of Korah and Kohath. The family within the tribe of Levi that was permitted to carry the holy things. Do you think this played a consideration in David's mind when he moved the ark? I think it might have. He did the right thing here. He followed God's word in at least giving up the ark to the right family of the right tribe. And it remained there for three months. When God's holiness is central and his name is honored in obedience to his word, then we see blessing. Chapter verse 12, and it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David, rejoicing. David finally does it the right way. David finally obeys God, even though it took him three months. David is a time guy. You ever realize that? His sin with Bathsheba? He didn't repent of that until after the baby was born. So, at least nine months. David's a time guy. And I, I, while he's a picture of Christ, I see a lot of Peter in the New Testament with him as well. A little bit stubborn, a little bit meat-headed, which I think many of us can probably align with, especially if we're married men, not women, men. <laughs> but David is moved to action by the faithful example of others. He knew he did it wrong the first time. How do we know he did it wrong? He knew that he did it wrong the first time? Well, I'll tell you. Turn to First Chronicles 15, chapter 12 and 13, or verses 12 and 13. And we see, And David said to them, You are the heads of the father's house of the Levites. Consecrate yourselves 
you and your brothers, so that you may bring the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place that I have prepared for it, because you did not carry the ark the first time, the anger of the Lord, our God, burst out against us. We failed to ask God how to move it properly. Of course David knew what he was supposed to do. And here it is in First Chronicles. Because you did not move it the first time. David was not putting blame on the Levites, the, the house of Kohath here, but he's admitting, because we didn't do it right, because I didn't give this instruction, because we didn't follow the law of God, his anger struck out against us. And so now, when we move it back, we're going to do it right. We're going to do it God's way. And sometimes, church, sometimes it takes a disaster. Sometimes it takes unfortunate events for God to get our attention. God will do whatever he wants to do to get a hold of us, to get our attention, to speak to our hearts, to pierce our hearts. But wouldn't you rather do it right the first time? Wouldn't you rather just be instructed on what God requires and come in rejoicing every week to worship, to wake up every morning rejoicing in the salvation of the Lord, having a clean conscience before the God of Israel and the God of our fathers and the God of this church? The law of God is not burdensome. It's not just a list of do's and don'ts. To the world it might be, but the world hates God. The world hates God's law. But as I stated earlier, obedience to the law is not done because it's a ritualistic thing that we just feel like we have to do. But obedience to God's law is in response to our love for Christ and what he has done for us. The thing that we could never do ourselves, but only Christ could do. The world hates Christ. The world hates you for proclaiming your love to Christ. The world is going to think you're weird and outdated for following an old book like this. But what the world doesn't understand is that this book is not necessarily old. I got mine just a couple years ago. No, the, wor- the words of this book are timeless. And they are timely because they are the eternal words of God. And God is eternal. And God's word does not change. God does not change based on the culture or the society that we live in or the circumstances that we are or that we find ourselves. But God's word is consistent and faithful and God is faithful to us. The regenerate heart loves the law of God. The regenerate law or the regenerate heart loves the word of God. Psalm 119:97 says, "Oh how I love your law." It is my meditation all the day. Can we pray that prayer, church? Can we say that every morning? Can we say, oh, how I love your law. It is not burdensome to me. It doesn't hold me back from anything that I want to do because I live my life to honor you. I live my life to glorify your son. I live my life to be separated from the world, yet a light to the world. I'm not saying you're saved by works, so please do not take this and think that I'm saying that. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. But proper worship and how we treat God's law and his word show the heart of a person. 
Are you governed by the word? Or are you governed by your own good intentions? You are filthy, but Christ has made you clean. Christ, the spirit of Christ, that presence of God with his people, no longer dwells in the house built by man. It no longer dwells in the symbolic picture of the ark. But that same spirit that raised Christ from the dead now dwells within you. And anyone who calls on the name of the Lord. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit, church. And we are made clean because God does not dwell in unclean places. Christ, live the life that God requires you to live. Yet we can't. And Christ took on the punishment and the death that you and I deserve. Christ was treated the way that you and your sins deserve to be treated so that you can be treated by God as wearing the righteousness of Christ. God does not look at you and view your sins if you are in Christ. God looks at you and sees his son. Please be encouraged by that this this afternoon, church. You were bought with a high price. Christ did nothing out of good intentions or having, in a worldly sense, the right heart attitude. But Christ submitted perfectly to the will of his Father. He fulfilled the law of God. He fulfilled all righteousness so that we can be here today, that we can give proper worship and honor and glory to his Son. We take ourselves out of the center, we take the eyes off of us, and we point to Christ and the work that he has done, and he is the one we worship today. Consider his word, church. Let's pray.